But it is really good to be with you this morning. Uh, my family, we've had the stomach bug running through our house this past week. So I'm very grateful just to be outside of those four walls and standing up and with you. Uh, and I'm really excited because we get this morning to start our series through the Gospel of Matthew. So that's what we'll be walking through this, this spring. And just really excited to walk through the life of Jesus um, over the next few months. If you were here in the fall, we went through the book of Revelation. And if you remember, there was one verse in Revelation that we put as like the central, the theme, the verse that explains the whole book. Y'all thought we were done with Revelation. We are just getting started. Um, no, so that verse, that verse was Revelation eleven fifteen, And this is what it said. The final trumpet just sounded, and this is how it reads. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So Revelation was all about the consummation, the finality, the at last of this kingdom, that it has fully encompassed the world. The kingdom of heaven that was breaking through into our world, it is now fully reached to the ends, and the kingdom of the world is fully the kingdom of heaven. So heaven and earth are reunited together again in full, like Eden, but even better, even more beautiful, even uh, more true. Everything sad has become untrue. So that was revelation, was that, that final picture of this kingdom coming in full for all eternity. So now as we go back to the gospel of Matthew, we're going to see the beginning, the onset, the birth or the advent of this kingdom. That's what Matthew is about, the advent of this kingdom and its king. Who is the king of this kingdom and what does this kingdom look like? Right? Jesus' first public words, when he announces his public ministry, he says this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's what we're going to see throughout this series is the kingdom of heaven is here and here's what it's like. It's arrived. And so we'll see in this series through Jesus' teaching through his action, through his non-action, through his relationships, his prayer, everything about his life, we will be seeing what is this kingdom like? And what is the king like? What does it mean to be a part of this kingdom? And what we're going to discover is that it's not what we expect. It's not what we expect. It's not what the people of Jesus' time expected, and it's not what people of our time would expect. It is an upside down kingdom. It is subversive. Everywhere we turn, it will surprise us. It's nothing like any other kingdom we've ever seen or been a part of. In this kingdom, it's better to serve than be served. The kingdom's king is gentle and lowly and meek. It's a kingdom of sacrifice, of giving away instead of taking power. And here's the danger for us, for those of us who grew up in the church or who are in the church currently. If you're, if you're here and you didn't grow up in the church or you're just a skeptic, you're just checking this out, um, or, or you're walking through this book for the first time, you won't have the same danger. So in some ways, you're actually a step ahead of us, um, us churchy people. But here's the danger for us church people. Everything I just said about the surprising nature of the kingdom, we can kind of nod along to, like, yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. Yep, know that one. That, that's how we can treat that surprise of the kingdom. 
And I'll confess, as I was getting started preparing uh, this week for this passage, and thanks to the stomach bug a little later than expected, um, I was like, well, it's fine because it's Matthew 1, it's the birth story. I've preached on this a couple times, so, you know, we can, it's pretty straightforward. And then as I got into it, was totally surprised by just how rich and deep I found it and discovering things I hadn't seen before. And so the temptation for us is that we can just kind of skim through these stories, skim through the familiar stories over the next few months in here, like, yeah, upside down kingdom, okay? And then go out into the kingdoms that we inhabit elsewhere, totally unchanged. Maybe we we take a nugget home with us, but just kind of like, yeah, yeah, that's the kingdom. And then we just go live our lives totally unchanged. And we'll miss first just how surprising and insane and crazy some of the things in the gospel are. And then secondly, we will miss that the purpose of this gospel being written for us, written to us, is for us to behold this king, to behold the king and his kingdom, to believe this really is the kingdom, this really is the king, this is the eternal kingdom, and then to actually become, that it would transform us, that it would change us, that it would move us, that as we walk through these stories of Jesus and what this king is like and what his kingdom is like. We're meant to find ourselves in this kingdom we were created for and be changed by it. And we believe here at Midtown, if you don't believe this, that is totally okay. And I'm so glad you're here. And I hope you find this king and his kingdom compelling as you walk through uh, this gospel of Matthew. And I would love to walk with you in whatever ways um, as you interact with this story and this kingdom. But we believe here at Midtown that this story is the most climactic, most important story of all of human history. That everything in the universe has its end, its telos is toward this story that we call the gospel. And that we are made to center our lives around it. That it changes everything. It changes everything. And so here's my invitation to you this spring. This is my invitation for us. There's going to be a lot of familiar stories, a lot of familiar stories. We're beginning today with the most familiar story in the entire Bible, the birth of Jesus. My invitation is, will you be curious? Will you be curious? Will you look to be surprised at the king and his kingdom and what's unfolding in these stories? And will you open your heart to be transformed? to be changed by the person and work and life and kingdom of Jesus Christ. So that's my invitation for us for this series. Uh, Who's reading our scripture passage? Great, Robert, we'll come on up. So today we're starting in Matthew 1, but we're actually starting in the second half of Matthew chapter 1 with the birth of Jesus. Next week we will go back and go to the genealogy of Jesus in those first 17 verses. But today is the birth of Jesus. And most of us are familiar with this story, but we're probably more familiar with Luke's version of the story, which focuses on Mary and her, her interactions and her uh, experience of the birth of Jesus. Matthew actually tells us the experience of Joseph, of his perception of the story. So that's what we're in today. Um, yeah, Robert, if you would read that for us. 
Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's, um, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to transform us through this story. Lord, we are, uh, we're here. We're here from all different sorts of places, um, all different sorts of experiences and backgrounds, and even just what our past week was like. Um, but we're here. We're eager to hear from you. We're eager for you to speak to us, to speak to our hearts, to quiet the chaos of our lives and give us your grace and transform us and change us. So, would you do that? We ask that you would move in our hearts deeply, that we wouldn't just skim past this familiar story, but that we'd be changed by it. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. So we're going to start uh, by just kind of walking through the story. So if you have your Bible with you, um, just encourage you to follow along. So we begin, uh, Matthew begins by saying, hey, here's the way this birth took place. And that word for birth in that first line is actually Genesis. It's the same word used in Matthew 1.1 that we translate as genealogy. Matthew's saying, this is the Genesis. This is the origin, the origin story of Jesus Christ. This is how it happened. This is how it took place. And so we'll see next week the Genesis in his lineage and his genealogy. But this week we're going to see, okay, this is the origin story of this person of this king, Jesus. So if you think about um, kings and kingdoms throughout history, their origin story, their lineage, which we'll see next week, but also their origin story, how they came onto the scene of history, is vitally important. Most of the history that we read and study is about kings and their kingdoms and their origins and their lineages and how they took the throne and how they came onto the scene. So we see all throughout history, we study the origin of kings and queens, where they came from. And what we're going to discover already, just in this first chapter, is that Jesus's origin story is surprising. It is not like other origin stories of kings that we know. I mean, take Alexander the Great, for example, born into royalty to his father, Philip II, king of Macedonia, and his mother, Olympias. Uh, even some, some other literary writings attribute his birth to Zeus, that he was actually a demigod, that Zeus was his real father. He was trained by Aristotle at a young age and educated. He took the throne as a teen. So you have this, uh, of these great kings and queens of history, we ha always have these immaculate, exciting, powerful rises in their origin story of where they come from. Jesus' origin story that's what Matthew's telling us. Hey, this is how this king, this King Jesus, this is how his origin story, his Genesis unfolded. So this is what he says. 
Now the birth of Jesus Christ, that word Christ is means the Messiah. It's not his last name. It's a title. Jesus, the Messiah. We're just four words in. There's already so much here. So the birth, Matthew's saying, so the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ took place in this way. Now, if you're a Jew in the first century, this word, this, this claim that Matthew's making of Jesus being the Messiah is the claim of all claims. You'll notice throughout the, the Gospel of Matthew, there's a lot of Jewish language, Jewish references, references to the Old Testament. Matthew is often called the Jewish Gospel because he, a Jew, is writing to a Jewish audience. And so you'll see him frequently referring, saying back to the Old Testament and saying, this was to fulfill. In this way, it fulfilled. He's always, he's always talking about how Jesus fulfills all the Jewish uh, expectations of a Messiah and all the promises God made in the Old Testament. And so when he starts off by saying, this is how the origin of Jesus, the Messiah, took place, this, his audience, the Jewish readers, this is beaming with meaning. It's beaming with meaning. You see, the Jews uh, at this time, first century Jews, they were not, no longer in exile in the sense that they were back in the land, or at least a minority of them were. Many of them were still spread out in Babylon and Egypt, but a minority of them were back in the land, but they were still under foreign rule. So originally in exile, they were under Babylonian rule and then Persian rule. And now they're under Roman rule, even still in the land. So in many ways, their experience is still exilic and they are still waiting. Even the ones who are back in the land, they are waiting for a Messiah. They're waiting, anticipating, hoping for this messianic salvation. Now, the first century Jews would have had a lot of expectations about what that messianic salvation looked like, what it was going to look like political, geographical, cultural. And as we go through Matthew's gospel, we will see Jesus address and talk about how his messianic kingdom, the kingdom he's bringing, is different. The way he's going to rule is different from the way they expect. But just this one word, just by Matthew saying, Jesus the Messiah, this is filled, it, it is bringing back all of these hopes and dreams and thoughts to Matthew's audience. It is beaming with this meaning of deep, rich hope of salvation, of deliverance, of peace, of shalom, of destiny, of righteousness and justice and restoration and healing, all sitting on the shoulders of this, this figure, the Messiah. That's what they read when they, when they read this, that's what they're thinking. And so Matthew is beginning his gospel with saying, he's here. That figure He's here. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one. He is the Messiah, which just means the chosen one, the anointed one. But it has all this imagery from the Old Testament tied up in it. He is the one who's going to restore the fortunes of God's people, who will free them from enemy rule, who will redeem them from their sin and all its consequences, who will bring salvation in full, like a, a cosmic salvation. All of their political hope, all of their cultural hope, all their geographical hope, all of their religious hope, all their economic hope is all tied up in this word, Messiah. Have I hyped up the word enough for you, for this, what this means to the first century Jews? So Matthew is saying, let me tell you of the origin story of this king who is this Messiah, who is this cosmic hope figure of salvation, which is why, knowing that, the next few verses are absolutely insane. They're crazy. Here's what he says. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary, okay, Mary, typical Jewish name, so far, so good, 
uh, had been betrothed to Joseph, another typical Jewish name. So we had this engaged Jewish couple, uh, young 13-year-olds. That's how old they would have been. Joseph might have been a few years older, but let's say 13, 14. So we've got a couple of tweens engaged to be married. Um, classic first century Jewish couple. And now it says, um, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's just pause there for a second. So Jesus, the Messiah, his origin story is a tween pregnancy out of wedlock. And it's, according to Mary, from God. I mean, think about how that would have sounded to Joseph. Think about how that would have sounded to everyone who heard this story. Like, okay, so you're still a virgin and you have a baby from God. Great, we'll believe that. Um, Joseph doesn't believe her, right? Joseph doesn't believe her. Uh, We know from Luke's gospel that Mary also has an angelic visit, but that's before she's pregnant. It's before she's conceived. An angel tells her, the Holy Spirit is going to conceive a son in you, and he will be all these things. He will come from David's line. He will take his throne. He will save his people. And so certainly when Mary told Joseph, hey, I'm pregnant, she told him about this dream, right? But Joseph doesn't believe her, and he resolves to divorce her quietly. Now, we don't have time to go, go deep into first century Jewish wedding culture, but engagement, betrothal, what's happening here, it's, it's a lot more than what it is in our culture. It's not just like plans to get married. It is a covenant. It is a covenant to be married. And they're not, they haven't had the wedding. They're not living together. They're not married yet. But legally, they are married. The only way out is by death or divorce. That's it. So that, that's why Joseph says he resolves to divorce her, because that's what's going on. Because he doesn't believe this crazy story that God got her pregnant apart from any human means, right? It's, I mean, it's wild, is it not? I know we know this story so well, so we're like, yeah, but just think about if this happened today in Nashville in 2024. If someone said this to you, it would be crazy. If we can't, like, if we can't reckon with and admit that a lot of what we believe just sounds totally insane, we're going to have a really hard time with the Bible because God is not afraid of shock factor. He does not shy away from it. Okay, so that's what's going on. Joseph is going to divorce her. Um, Now let's just pause, right? So the 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 cosmic this this cosmic salvific figure in the Messiah, his origin story is a tween pregnancy out of wedlock, where she's claiming God got her pregnant, and her her other her tween fiance has decided to, how many times am I going to say tween today? <laughs> has decided to divorce her. So that's, that's Jesus' origin story so far. Pregnant out of wedlock, angelic visions, divorce. And that's just the beginning. It only gets crazier from here. You know, the Bible is a lot of things, but boring is not one of them. Okay, so Joseph decides to divorce her. And um, the, 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 we can't go into too much detail here, but the quietly thing is, essentially, he could have had a public trial and that would have been um, almost worse than death for Mary. The, the shame and that culture, it would have been horrible. But he would have gotten his bride price back if she was convicted of adultery, which would have happened because no one believed this story. But he, the way he's described here, is of very high character. It says that he is just. That word is righteous, which means he follows the law. He follows the Torah. He follows God's instruction. But we also see his compassion that he's actually going to sacrifice his bride price 
um, to spare Mary the public shame and ridicule and to divorce her quietly, which was also acceptable. You could get divorced in the presence of two witnesses, but that's what he's losing. He's losing this bride price that he's worked for, um, for this engagement. And so we have righteousness and compassionate in this um, description of Joseph. But that's what he decides to do, that he's going to divorce her. And then an angel of the Lord visits him in a dream. So pick back up here in uh, verse 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now remember, Mary's already been visited by an angel. Um, We know that from the Gospel of Luke. And so what's happening is this is actually probably confirming to Joseph what Mary has said, because this angel is telling him the same thing. So he, he, um, he wakes from this dream, having heard of this confirmation of this news of this pregnancy, that this really is a virgin birth by the spirit of God and that he's going to have a son named Jesus. And Matthew tells us, this is kind of the first of many this was to fulfill. We'll see throughout the gospel. He tells us, um, this was to fulfill, this happened for what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, which is the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Joseph wakes from his dream and he obeys. He obeys the command of the Lord, of the angel of the Lord. And I mean, this is by faith, even with an angelic vision. Remember, think about if this happened today. Even with an angelic vision, this is certainly an act of faith on Joseph's part. He obeys, he takes Mary as his wife, and they have a son, and he names him Jesus. So that is the genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, the King, or at least the beginning of it. We're going to go back and see the lineage next week, but then we're going to jump to chapter three after that. So I would just encourage you uh, in your own time to read the rest of chapter two, the rest of this origin story. It only gets crazier. There's magicians, astrology, death threats, fleeing countries, massacre, more angelic dreams, frankincense, whoever knows what that means. Um, and that's just in Jesus' first two years of life. That's, that's his first two years. That's his origin. My, my two-year-old has experienced moving states, watching Bluey, fighting me over bath time. So pretty close to that kind of intensity. Um, but that's the origin. That's the origin story of our Messiah. That is how this king came onto the scene of history. And in this origin story, we have these two names. We see these two names that tell us of the nature and purpose of this king. So that's, that's where we're going to spend the rest of this, this time we have, are on these two names um, of this Messiah, Jesus and Emmanuel. What they mean, what they tell us about this king, and then in turn, what they mean for us, what they tell us about us, because both the names are directed toward us. They aren't just descriptive of Jesus. They're actually directed toward you and toward me. They mean something toward us. He will save us from our sins and God with us. So that's how we're going to spend the rest of our time before we come to the table. So Matthew gives us these two names to tell us, hey, from the origin, from the onset, from the genesis of this Messiah, this is what his purpose was. This is what his purpose is, what he has come to do and fulfill and bring about. And it's one, to be 
with us, to be with us. That actually bookends Matthew's entire gospel. We have here in the first chapter, Emmanuel, and then all the way at the end in chapter 28, the very last words of Jesus are, I will be with you always to the end of age. So that frames the entire gospel. That's what Matthew's saying. Number one, he has come to be with us, to be Emmanuel, to be God with us. And then number two, to save us from our sins, to save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus, that name actually means the Lord is salvation or Yahweh, the divine name for God. Yahweh is salvation. And Matthew actually has a little wordplay going on here, um, a little literary wordplay for his Jewish audience. Because in Hebrew, the verb, he will save, is from the same root as the name Jesus. And they sound very similar. And he's putting them right next to each other. And the the word play that's kind of going on here is, in that he will save his people from their sins, who's the he? Is it Jesus or is it Yahweh? Because his name means Yahweh is salvation. So he will save us from our sins. Who? Who's that he? Yahweh or Jesus? And the answer, of course, is yes. Because what Matthew is unfolding at at the very start and what we'll see throughout is that this Jesus, this Messiah, is not merely a man from Nazareth who's taking on this messianic role. He is God himself. This is Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the eternal God taking on flesh, stepping into his own creation to be Emmanuel, to be God with us. And so these two names that we find here, Emmanuel and Jesus, they actually tell us the entire story of scripture and the entire story of humanity. Because these names tell us not only about who Jesus is and his purpose, but they tell us who we are. And what they're telling us is that we are a people who need God to be with us, right? If Jesus is bringing Emmanuel to us, that's showing us that we need the dawn of Emmanuel. We need God with us. And we need to be saved from our sins. We need salvation. And those two really are one and the same. Because sin, I know that's a very scary churchy word for some people, but sin is much more than just moral guilt or doing the wrong thing. It is a heart reality. It's a cosmic reality, but it's a heart reality that is this bent, is this turn away from God. That's what sin is. Just just pretend you've never heard that word before. Never heard sin. You don't have any connotations with it. If the name Emmanuel means God with us, sin means us without God. That's what it is. It is this bent of of our hearts to turn away from God, to do life without him, to find flourishing and goodness and happiness and all these things apart from God, apart from the one who made us. It is this us without God that has these cosmic realities. But that's what happened in the garden. That's what happened with our first parents. As they sought life apart from God, they sought to find goodness and flourishing and destiny on their own turning away from the God who made them, who is life, who is beauty, who is goodness, where all of these things are found. Right in the garden in Eden, there was Emmanuel. God was with them. He walked with them. They knew him. They talked to him. They played with him. They came alongside and created with him. There was Emmanuel. They had communion and relationship with the one who made them and loved them. 
but they turned and bent away from God. They had this us without God, this thing called sin. They turned from Emmanuel to sin, from God with us to us without God. And not only was the divine relationship lost, but human relationship, right? That's, we see that conflict between their marriage start, that that also is broken, that um, their bodies, right? Now childbirth is painful. The earth is futile. Thorns and weeds come up. That this sin, this us without God mentality, it actually affects everything. It has this cosmic effect that goes out that everything is affected by it. And so when Jesus is saying he's coming to save us from our sins, he's talking about all of it. He's not just saying like, hey, bring your demerit list to me and I'll sign off and good luck. No, that's not what's happening. He's saying, hey, your, your heart is bent away from me, away from God, away from your neighbor and for yourself, for your own gain, I'm saving that. The effects of other sins, that's, that's wrapped up in this. The effects we receive from other people's sins, pain, hurt, trauma, abuse, everything we receive from the effects of sin of other people, he's coming for that too. That's part of this salvation. And then the cosmic effects of sin, war, poverty, injustice, abuse, all of that, the futility of our planet, I'm making that right too. He's coming for all of it. That's what we saw in Revelation is that everything, everything in the universe, he's saying, mine, and I'm making right. I'm bringing renewal. Everything broken, every sin-stained inch of the universe, I'm going to bring renewal to. I'm going to bring salvation to. So this sin, this us without God, it is all-encompassing. But it starts, its genesis, its origin is in our hearts. That's where it starts, right? It's our hearts that speak into existence the us without God, that end up having all these cosmic effects, that end up you receiving the effects from other people speaking that in their hearts. And because we were made in his image, everyone, Christian, skeptic, Muslim, atheist, all of us were made in his image we were designed for life and flourishing and goodness and beauty, but we've turned away, we've actually bent away from the source of those things, from the one who is goodness, who is beauty, who is life. And so we look for those things and anything we can find, and part of that is actually good because we were made for that. We were never made to experience the absence of goodness and beauty and flourishing. That's how God created us. But because we've bent away from God, now I'm trying to find this in anything else I can. And so that innate desire is good, but we, we put it in all the wrong places and get ourselves into all sorts of messes because we're bent on looking for it or finding it or creating it on our own, on our own terms. And what that leads to is for our own good and not for my neighbor's good. It's why we have conflict and anger and selfishness and putting others down for selfish gain and all the rest that steamrolls into these massive global realities of injustice and abuse and poverty and war. Those exist because of the human heart. Those aren't just like concepts out there. Those exist because of the human, because of many human hearts. 
And Jesus is saying, I'm coming to save you from your sins. Yes, from all of it. And especially from the genesis, from the origin of that, which is in your hearts. I'm coming after your heart. I've got some friends that love uh, Smiling Elephant. Any Smiling Elephant people in here? Okay, great. Um, So at Smiling Elephant, there's two kinds of noodles. Um, Rice noodles and green bean noodles. And they love the green bean noodles. They, they get the same dish every time. They used to get the rice noodles, and then one time, uh, Smiling Elephant was out, and so they had to swap in the green bean noodles. That's all they had. And they fell in love, and it's like, I can never go back to rice noodles again. And so um, after that, they would always request, like, can, you, can we do it with green bean noodles? And they just went on this streak where literally every time they called it in, Smiling Elephant would mess it up. They they would ask for green bean noodles, and they would get rice noodles every single time they called it in. I mean, they were like, this is a first world problem, but man, that'll grind your gears. (laughs) And so they are just like furious because they, and it would get to the point where they would be like, they'd say it four times on the phone, like at the beginning, in the middle, at the end, like, hey, just want to double check green bean noodles in this dish. And the person on the phone would be like, yep, we got it. Again, wrong. And so on like the sixth or seventh time, I don't know the number, uh, a friend was going to pick up food for them in a group. And so they tell the friend, like, hey, I need you to pull my meal out of the bag, literally open it up, point, and say, green bean noodles, right? And so she goes, she does it. She's like, yep. They said yes. She brings it back to the house. It's wrong. (laughs) It is rice noodles again. And I mean, this is like mind boggling to them. They are. And so finally they go in and they're like, what in the world is going on? Like, seriously, how is this possible? And um, they found out. Did you know what happened? They were mixing up which one was which. So in that original story where they thought, oh, we used to get rice noodles and now we get green bean noodles, it was actually the other way around. So they were calling for green bean noodles and getting green bean noodles every single time. They had just messed up which one was the kind of noodles they liked. And so finally, when they went in, the lady like held up both and was like, which one? And (laughs) they're like, that one. And she's like, those are rice noodles, not green bean noodles. And that, that funny, hilarious story, that's also, if that was you, would be horrible. Um, That is the reality of sin for all of us. Because what we want to do, what I want to do, is I want to see the effects of sin in the world. I want to see its consequences. I want to see the consequences of other people's sin that I receive, which are real. Those are real, and I need to be saved and delivered from those too. I need salvation there. But I want to think, if that was solved, then I'd be happy. Like, even, even for us who are Christians, who believe, like, who we, we believe we are sinners in need of a Savior, we can functionally act and think and dream as if, if everything outside of me, if, if these injustices, if, if those people, if that side of the political aisle, if my family, if my kids, if the economic situation... If all of that was dealt with, then utopia. But the reality is, if everything else went away or or was dealt with, it all went away, then finally I'd have life. No, I wouldn't because I'm still here and I'm still calling in green bean noodles. It's still me. And so like, thank the Lord that he is renewing all of those things and that he will make all of the things outside of me right. We saw that in Revelation. He will restore um, 
us without God to Emmanuel. But the origin story of that is in my heart. And so foremost, first and foremost, like at the Genesis, what I need is to be saved from my sins. I am in desperate need of a savior who will save me from my sins and turn my heart back to Emmanuel. It will take my heart from, from me without God to God with me. That is what I need at the foremost. And that is what Jesus came to do. That is what Matthew is saying. Hey, this is the beginning of the story, but this is why he came. This is why he stepped in to creation. He came to save us, to deliver us, to restore us to that which we were made for, God with us, because he loves us. That is what the gospel is all about. That is what human history is all about. And it all begins with a tween couple, pregnant out of wedlock, on the brink of divorce, saved by angelic intervention. And it only gets crazier from here. So I hope you'll stick around for the rest of the story and what it means for us and for our world. So now as we come to the table this morning, we actually get to experience, to participate in the tangible expression of God with us and the being saved from our sins. This is the table of Emmanuel. This is where God is with us. This is where he gives us himself, where we receive and experience the grace of God. Jesus brought salvation. The end of the story, or maybe the middle of the story, is that Jesus brought salvation through his death on our behalf. His taking the consequences of our sins, all of it, that we might be restored to communion with God. And so we gather to feast on his body and his blood to taste and see that he is good and that he loves us and to experience that reality of Emmanuel. So scripture tells us um, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this table is for everyone. Everyone who knows they are in deep, desperate need of a savior for their sins. And that savior is Jesus that his is the only name in heaven or on earth by which we might be saved. Today could be the first time or the thousandth time. But if you know that you are in need of a savior from your sins and believe Jesus's life, death, and resurrection made that possible to save you from your sins, then this meal is for you. So come and feast. If you're not there yet, if um, you're not sure you believe that or you're just checking this out, we'd love to invite you to think about if this were true, if this were all true, if Jesus really could bring Emmanuel, God with you, where in your life would you most need to experience that? Like where in your life would you most need, if this were true, to experience the presence of God? 
For those who are coming up, um, the band is going to play. And the way we do it here is we have these kneelers up here. Um, so if you want to come and kneel, uh, this is kind of an individual um, partaking of communion. And whenever you're ready, you can uh, put out your hands like this and someone will serve you. Uh, if you need prayer, you can just raise your hand and we'd love to pray over for you. So if you're doing that, you can come line up against this wall. Um, then we have these community tables where we will take it um, as a family, as this little um, this little collection of us um, together. And so you can line up in the middle or on the, this band side for that. Um, yeah, so let me, let me pray for us, and then the band will, will lead us in communion. Lord, thank you for um, your body and your blood. This mystery that is uh, too, almost too profound to really grasp what we are feasting on in this meal. Would you nourish us? Would you give us yourself? Would you show us your grace, we pray in your son's name. Amen.